Okay, welcome back to another episode of, Glo of Contemporary Philosophy Global Conversations with me, uh, John Simmons from University of Kansas. And our show is brought to you on the uh, MANA platform. MANA is the Saudi platform for culture and philosophy. Graciously host these conversations with some of the great philosophers of our time. It's a real pleasure to have my friend Richard DeGeorge uh, with us today. Uh, Richard is an extraordinarily distinguished philosopher, one of the founders, maybe the founder of an uh, area of philosophy called business ethics. Uh, business ethics was a movement, is a movement, I guess, in philosophy to carefully think through some of the distinctive ethical challenges, moral questions in our the life of business and, and finance, et cetera, in our sort of commercial lives. Um, Richard is also well known as an expert in Soviet thought. Soviet thought um, is an area of philosophy that is given re relatively little attention today, although maybe it is of increasing interest. Um, Richard has been uh, faculty at some of the world's great universities. He's been, um, he's lectured at Columbia. He's been a, um, a fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford. Um, a long list of, of great institutions, among which is the University of Kansas, of course. Um, he's the author of 20 books, hundreds of scholarly articles, and um, has been a kind of a pillar in our, in our profession, in the profession of philosophy, with many, many uh, positions of institutional leadership and um, has had a central role as a sort of a, an editorial board member, an editor of journals, etc. Um, Richard has been distinguished professor at University of Kansas, and um, I count Richard as a good friend. So I'm I'm looking forward to discussing. Um, I'd like to begin with Soviet philosophy, and I really want to hear um, about the genesis of your early work in Soviet thought. Um, back in, I think, 62 or 63, you published a really important book called Patterns in Soviet Thought, which I, th I would recommend to anyone who wants to understand the nature of Soviet philosophy. Um, but I found myself with more questions going in or coming out than I did going in. Um, maybe we could, we could talk a little bit about um, what seems to be a kind of a core contradiction as you portray it in Soviet thinking, this contradiction, at least as I understand it, between the kind of materialist um, spirit, let's say, of Soviet thinking and their high idealism. So this sort of pull, this tug of war between a kind of romanticism on the one hand and this kind of uh, prosaic practical set of interests on the other, or between a kind of a radical form of materialism on the one hand and <clears throat> a, an almost spiritual conception of human destiny and human history on the other. 
So I've said a lot. So tell us a little bit about how you how you started thinking about Soviet thought, Richard, if you may. Okay, I uh, went to the University of Kansas after I finished at Yale, and I had no intention of teaching Marxism. I had never had a course in it. And I was asked to do that so that the university could establish a Soviet and East European studies program. And I was the only one in the philosophy department who knew Russian. So I went off to the institute, uh, an institute in Switzerland run by Professor Bohensky, which specialized in Russian thought. And I immersed myself in Marx and Lenin, and Stalin, and Russian philosophy, Soviet philosophy, really. And at a certain point, I saw that I had to go to the Soviet Union and talk to these people, because I really had no good context to put what I was reading. I went to the Soviet Union for a month, and I met with a lot of Soviet philosophers, and I found that I was on the right track. I think I understood what they were doing. I was able to talk to them, and they seemed to think that I was worth talking to even about Marxism. So I started out teaching at the teaching a course in Marxism and Soviet philosophy. I knew that there was no book that I could have gone to that would introduce me to the field. And I had to struggle to find all sorts of sources to see how you approach this uh, issue and how to think about Marxism and, Soviet and the Soviet Union. And my big concern was that in the United States, Marx was the devil. Nobody could be Marxist. The John Birch Society would be after you if you ever mentioned Marx. And he was anathema. Wasn't taught in any college or university that I knew. On the other hand, half the world seemed to follow him. How could I explain, how could I make sense of the division that seemed so important part of the Cold War, and yet we had these two different impressions of Marx. So I wrote that book, Patterns of Soviet Thought, as a guide for people who wanted to learn, okay, what's going on there? What's the ideology? What does it come out of? And it comes out of Marx, and Marx, I thought, continued to think, had a lot to say that was correct. It was stupid of people simply to dismiss him. His critique of capitalism was in many ways right on the mark. And my view, his mistake was looking for the solution in revolution and the establishment of some state. He was very vague about what that state would look like. When his views were instantiated by Lenin, we found out what sort of state and they led to the Soviet Union, which from our point of view was repressive 
and uh, it was also revolution uh, inspired and they continued to try to export revolution uh, as Lenin had suggested. So you mentioned, you mentioned the view, or you mentioned your impression that Marxism was a sort of a, uh, a uh, taboo topic in the United States in the late 1950s and early 60s. And that contrasts dramatically, of course, with our current situation, where I think uh, most sort of bourgeois liberal intellectuals in the West would, uh, would sort of identify with large elements of Marxist thought, but also it contrasts sharply with, let's say, the French intellectual culture of the 1950s and, and early 1960s, where someone like uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, for example, would say, well, at this point, we are all Marxists, right? Which, whatever that means. Um, yes. So, so it's, tr as, you know, okay, there are all kinds of debates and fractures within uh, French thought, but it certainly seemed as though um, existential philosophy after the Second World War was, was at least attracted to, um, to communist and Marxist thought in ways that, um, that we're familiar with today. And yeah, it's well, striking, striking to me, for example, that, so here you were, you were teaching among the first courses in Marxism in the United States, um, trying to, to show, to give a balanced picture, let's say, as best you could of Marxist thought. Within five or six years, Marxism became a highly fashionable kind of uh, position for, for young people to adopt, et cetera. I mean, do you, how do you understand that transition from let's say the early 1960s to 68, 69, 70 in, in, uh, in the West and let's say in the United States? Yeah, let me give you a little autobiographical information. Yeah. In 1952-53, I spent a year at the University of Paris, and I was inundated with existentialism. It was in the air. It was all over. So I saw what it was and how it was approached, and I understood when South said we are all Marxists, of course, not everybody was, but all the intellectuals, or many of them was, not Gabriel Marcel, not Heidegger, not others, uh, the French intellectuals were. All right, when I came back to the United States, suddenly we had uh, the communist witch hunt going on, and uh, Nobody uh, admitted, or very few people would admit to being Marxist. So we had two different kinds of things going on. Whereas the Soviet Union was just going on its way. Now the Soviet Union, I said, was sort of odd because it had this dichotomy of being idealistic on the one hand, and they championed communism as opposed to exploitative capitalism. And uh, their ideal was everyone would be free, we would all be free together. But the means that they adopted was very authoritarian. And they had a clash, an internal clash in their own 
thinking and in their own society. And that clash was reflected also in the Cold War. So that they emphasized their ideals. We emphasized what was actually going on uh, in the country. The, um, the change in the United States in 63, you couldn't be a Marxist. Now, I ran a, a uh, lecture series and I invited Herbert Marcuse, who was teaching at Brandeis, to give a lecture. He gave a very good lecture on the morality of revolution. And he was a Marxist part of the Frankfurt School. Now what happens that various things happened in Europe and in 1968 he became the guru for the students in Paris who were out in the streets marching. Now he also became sort of a guru in the United States so that some students started following Marcuse and got into Marxism through Marcuse. You point out that a lot of intellectuals now seem to be Marxist. Uh, I doubt whether many of them have actually read Marx. And of course, that was true in the Soviet Union. Soviet Union were not allowed to read early Marx, the humanistic Marx, that was forbidden. In one of my trips, I had an early work of Marx, and it was confiscated at the border. I couldn't bring it into the Soviet Union, which I thought was a great <laughs> irony. Here I had Marx, and he was forbidden. All right, that's the way things were. So trying to get your mind around these contradictions was part of my job. And that's what I pursue, that's what I try to talk to uh, Soviet philosophers about, how they lived with that sort of dichotomy. And I was told privately that a lot of my criticism they agreed with, but they couldn't say so. And the more I found out about what goes on in the universities there, the more I saw that the students really didn't take Marxism all that seriously. They followed the Soviet rules because they had to, but they were not ideological uh, conformists, except really on the surface. Uh, to get anything published, you had to start with a little phrase of Marx or Lenin, uh, and then you get into the real work. Uh, I also found out that any of the things I talked about in Patterns of Soviet Thought about Soviet philosophy, that was available only to a certain limited number of people. The, you know, the uh, printing for those books was less than 2,000. And what the people got was a lot of propaganda, always in Marxist terminology, but uh, I wouldn't take it seriously. I wouldn't consider it serious philosophy. The serious philosophy, to the extent it was done, was done sort of privately. And people wrote for the draw. They didn't publish. 
but there was good there was some good thinking going on, but you never saw it in print. When you say they wrote for the drawer, you mean literally they would write their work and then and then put it in and there. And then you put it in the drawer and you leave it. <laughs> you <there>. left it there. <laughs> Maybe you circulated it in small numbers among your friends, but you knew you couldn't publish it, you just left it. Interesting. This is great. So tell us, I mean, what was, um, when you saw this transition in um, United States and, uh, and I guess in the West generally, from the early 1960s to the late 1960s, uh, you put Marcuse, um, or you mentioned Marcuse as, as part of that story. What do you think his role was in um, making Marxist thought um, palatable or, or attractive to, uh, to a Western audience of young people? Well, first of all, he didn't follow the Soviet line. Secondly, he emphasized the humanistic part of Marx, which wasn't allowed in the Soviet Union. And he had followers. Angela Davis was a student, and mm -hmm. she was radical firebrand, um, very influential. And there were others who were like her, very influential, whom Marx uh, followed mostly his early works um, and were attractive to students. He Warns in uh, the Vietnam War was very unpopular, and uh, this was sort of an alternative that students could turn to and think about their own society and how it might be changed more radically than it had been for a while, and they brought about a lot of changes. Mm -hmm. So we had a I don't know how many of them actually read Marx, uh, but they got the feeling that things were wrong with our society, they could be changed, but it required more radical change than the simple piecemeal things that were mostly taking place. Very good. So when you, when you um, then in the late 1960s, then of course you're, you begin to turn more towards a, criticism of American capitalism, a sort of a moral criticism of American capitalism. And you're recognizing that there are aspects of, let's say, our life, our commercial lives that are unjust or, or um, could be improved, let's say. Um, do you see that as continuous with that transformation in American society at the time? Do you see that as as orthogonal to Marxism. So for example, you said, well, there were a lot of things that Marx said that I think were correct. Um, and then, um, so maybe you can make that connection in your own right. thinking uh, between Marx and, and business ethics. And I'll give you a little story about uh, when I was having lunch with the Dean of the School of Business, both of us were commiserating about the terrible state of business with respect to ethics. And at the same time, I was asked by a colleague, could I write a defense of capitalism since I knew Marx and respond to Marx? 
right? The two come together. And in writing this little piece about a defense of American capitalism, I said, Marx got a lot of things right that were bad about capitalism, including American capitalism, but he got the solution wrong. We don't need a revolution. We need internal change. And internal change, I came to see, meant that we really have to take the moral compass to some extent that Marx had and apply it to business. And there was no field of business ethics at the time that led me to think that yeah, we need something that systematically brings together all the complaints about, of people, about the ugly American, about the, uh, the growing power of corporations, uh, we had various scandals at the time, Lockheed scandal, other scandals, but nobody is addressing all of those issues and tying them all together. We had women's rights, we had civil liberties, uh, we had all sorts of movements, student protests, and my view was that all the can be brought together and made sense of, and we can have a nice systematic approach and try to inculcate ethical norms in business in a way that they weren't at the time inculcated. That led me to, to do business ethics, and I was doing business ethics. Uh, hadn't been called that yet, but business ethics at the same time I was doing my Soviet uh, studies. So it's it's really it's fascinating to hear the history of business ethics as a kind of an outgrowth of this uh, from at least this Cold War context and as a kind of a response to the Marxist critique. Um, do you do you see it as having been successful? Business ethics. Oh yes. Uh, if you put yourself back. In 1972, people, again, had a dichotomous view. On the one hand, business was business, and of course, you couldn't expect anything ethical from them. And on mm -hmm. the other hand, they were very proud of free enterprise as opposed to state ownership, which, is, which they found in the Soviet Union. So here again, we had a tension that bothered me. And I wondered how that could be bridged. And I tried to start a field, was successful, I think, called Business Ethics. And I wrote the first book which outlined how this all happens, starting with a critique of capitalism and also a critique of socialism, and then showing how we could uh, operate by criticizing and looking seriously at the foundations of capitalism, at private property, at profit, uh, at the managerial level about how workers are treated, at the uh, corporate level about what corporations are doing to the society, 
and at the international level, since globalization was just beginning, and it was obvious that business was going to go in that direction. Mm. Now, that took off so mm. that when I first, when I wrote my first book, before I wrote my first book, I wrote a 90-page outline of what a course in business ethics could look like. And I asked through the APA, how many of you would like a copy of this? And I got 900 requests. 900. <laughs> okay. I'll just say the APA is the American, the American Philosophical Association, which is the professional organization for philosophers in the United States. So <clears throat> with 900 colleagues out there in all universities and colleges across the country, I knew that there was interest in other people joining in the same field in this endeavor, and one had to change the mindset. So I looked at my own philosophy, my own uh, university, and in the business school, nobody spoke about ethical issues. We just didn't raise those issues. So I offered a course to business faculty on what business ethics was and how they could incorporate it into their uh, subject matter. And I got 12 takers who took a short course over the summer. And one of the effects was that now in their faculty lounge, people were raising issues about ethics and business that they had felt before, but were afraid to talk about. Same thing was true across the field in business. Businesses didn't want to hear anything about ethics, uh, and people didn't talk about it. If you look now, we have all sorts of things going on. Movements, people, corporations present themselves as socially responsible, as ethical, they have uh, ethical checklists. You can find all sorts of things that business says, look, we are being ethical in our practices. We're trying to be transparent. We take into account workers' rights. We take into account affirmative action. We take into account, you name it, and you can put us down and check us off as fulfilling that obligation. So you see this as has come about in 40 years has yeah. been tremendous. Okay. So this is, you know, from, uh, from the perspective of a young person today who might have a, sort of a slightly more jaded view of, uh, of the, the moral <laughs> comportment of large corporations. Um, maybe you could, you could give some concrete contrasts where let's say, for example, today, um, I think most, uh, most young people are, are broadly skeptical of, uh, of large corporations and their intentions, or maybe they should be. And uh, what would you say to, to, to someone like that? And, and how much of that credit for that transformation that you describe is due to, let's say, philosophy? And how much of it do you think is due to, let's say, broader cultural factors or, or, or larger um, social and political um, movements in, in, in the West and in the United States in particular 
and I'm, I'm I'd like to see you um, explain or or describe the role of of philosophy, and I, I think there is one, or there has been one, in changing the way people have thought about these questions, and and yeah. Okay, if I give you a little history, mm. uh, the business ethics started and it was looked down upon by philosophers as not being philosophy mm -hmm. and it was looked down upon as business about intrusion into their field by people who didn't know the first thing about business. Right. So we were fighting on both, both uh, fronts at the same time. Nevertheless, the growth of courses in business ethics, mostly taught in philosophy departments, caught on. And it was taught in most of the major universities, a lot of the small colleges. It became uh, not entirely accepted, but it became a fixture in the university. In that it affect business, it affected business somewhat so that we had Johnson and Johnson with its credo was a poster child for ethics and business. Uh, there were others that were uh, models that people in the field could point to and say, you know, this isn't only uh, academics, there are good corporations and the good corporations are profitable. You don't have to choose one over the other. You can have both. But we were still, eh, I'd say, below most people's radar. In 1991, we had a, a, a new legislation. The, the uh, federal sentencing guidelines for corporations in which judges were instructed you can lower the fine of a corporation that is violating some of uh, some law of the United States you can lower their fine up to 90 percent mm. so if you're fining them 10 million dollars lower that 90 percent under certain conditions if they have ethics program in place, if they have a systematic way of tracking and uh, having penalties for those who violate the ethics program. And suddenly, businesses came to those people in business ethics and said, help us, we have to have an ethics program. We don't know how to do this. We've never done it before. And there was a boom in business now, what happened was eventually they, of course, took over so that you mm. had a uh, co-option of a lot of business ethics by corporations. They started their own programs. They taught them in their own way. But they did start thinking about social responsibility. They did start thinking about workers' rights. They did start thinking about a lot of things that they hadn't paid any attention to before. Is all this due to philosophy? 
course not. So you had to have, one of the important factors was you had to have government behind us. As soon as the government came out and offered a big carrot, if you were ethical, things changed. Mm. Okay. You had social movements that weren't led by philosophers, but they were uh, effective. And some of them actually read some of the material coming out of business ethics. So I'd say we had an impact. I would say we don't take, the we being those in philosophy, don't take credit for all the changes. And there weren't enough of us in the field and the fields, when it was taken over by business schools, uh, frequently they decided to teach their own course in business ethics, even though they had nobody there who really knew how to do it. And uh, gradually more people in business schools learned how to do business ethics. They weren't philosophers. They don't do it the way we do. It was more empirical. but they brought changes to uh, the academic programs, which the uh, accrediting agencies mandated. They okay. mandated that there be some ethics in the business school curriculum. Right. Uh, so, yeah, there have been a lot of changes. And philosophers, I'd say, started it and uh, were influential all along the way. It's certainly... a, a it's certainly an achievement uh, of yours and of other business ethicists that this is, you know, is even a topic of conversation, I would say. And uh, it certainly had genuine, genuine consequences. I worry a little bit when I look at the curricula in, for example, business ethics or engineering ethics, which I've looked at pretty closely, I worry about a kind of attitude of compliance and checklists, right? So it seems like the principal concern in these courses is not breaking any laws and complying with some general, um, rather unquestioned uh, norms, et cetera, that, that are just listed as a kind of, as you said, as a checklist. Um, and I wonder, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the sources of moral insight so that we could, when we, when, we, when we encounter a new domain, let's say domains like um, uh, privacy violation by technology, or um, let's say uh, the consequences of uh, administrative regulation of our lives in, after the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. When we, when we encounter new contexts, there aren't preset checklists. There isn't law, and there aren't clear checklists, clear guidance that you can just uh, turn to uh, from your attorneys or your HR department. So what, what are the sources of moral insight that we could bring to these new domains? So you said, for example, that Marx was right about some things. So presumably what you have in mind there would be, let's say, the the injustice of the exploitation of workers and people who don't have access to capital, don't control capital. And you would say that's unfair, right? And that's unjust. And that's a, that's a, that's, that's a, a bad feature of, of uh, unregulated capitalism. Where does that insight 
come from? What, what, what guides our moral reasoning? Not only with respect to capitalism, but with respect to these new domains and new challenges. All right, let me go back again, talking about uh, origins and beginnings. The same problem arose when business ethics started. What, what sources do you use? How do you approach these? How do you make it intelligible to the ordinary person? And I think you always have to start where people are. So it's, you know, you can go out and say, this is what Aristotle said, this is what Kant said, and people say, so what? Uh, that's what he said, I never heard of them, I don't care. So what you have to do is try, first of all, to translate some of the great insights that we've had from Aristotle, Kant, uh, Hume, Mill, uh, others. You can make your own list. And you have to try to translate what you've learned by studying deeply what these people have to say into language that makes it accessible to people who don't have that background and who do have values, but for the most part, they're unarticulated. They do have views about what's moral and what isn't, but they're not systematic. They work from intuition and they don't know how the intuitions, if they uh, conflict, how you settle that so that even with students, students come in and the worst thing was that most of them were relativists. They didn't know they were relativists. They didn't know what relativism was, but they in fact said, oh, you know, he does his thing, I do my thing. We leave each other alone, that's it. Uh, everybody's right, nobody's wrong. Until they found out that when they interact, if you stole my $5 bill, I didn't say, oh, that's your view. You think that you deserve it. Uh, that's fine. Enjoy it. Uh, no, if you stole my $5 bill, I got angry. And I said, that's not right. <laughs> you stole. Uh, and I would react. All right. They had visceral reactions. What they didn't have was any nice framework to think through a lot of the issues. So part of the job was to try to write in a way that was accessible to people so that you could get them to see that many of these issues can be systematically approached, can be made to have sense using the values that you have, but where they're inconsistent, where they aren't well defended, there are ways of thinking about how to defend moral judgments and how to make them consistent. So there's a lot of back and forth. And if you ask, where do we go? Well, I've tried to go various places that weren't uh, attacked before. Global issues, once globalization started, there were a lot of issues. Whose ethics do you follow if you're trading with a company. How do you get an ethics that's acceptable both to somebody in Bangladesh and in the United States? 
They have different cultures, different backgrounds, yet if we want to interact with them, we have to find points of contact. And I think that a just way of dealing with this is you have to come to some sort of agreement about what would be acceptable from their point of view and from our point of view, what would both of us consider just and non-exploitative? If we could find that as a basis for our negotiation of an agreement, well then that's what we would use. We don't have to get agreement on all points, all moral issues or any of that, but we have to find enough agreement the area that we're working with that we can proceed together and come up with a solution we're both happy with and that we can then build on. So I see. you're good. Yeah, I see. So, so your broad view then would be that um, the kinds of uh, norms that you would advocate for, let's say, in these kinds of commercial transactions would arise from these conversations that they would they would be sort of consensus um they would be built around a consensus so that you'd form these consensus positions uh through conversation and then agree to stick with those consensus positions you sound like Habermas, but yeah that's the that's yeah. the uh, that's the, the way to go I see. I see. Now, do you see that as as specifically the sort of the model for commercial interaction, or do you see that more broadly as kind of a, a strategy? Well, I think for, that's more broad. So we will do it socially too. Mm. Uh, but commercially, they have a, a payoff that they realize that if I started talking about if you go abroad, well, if you want to be accepted in the country in which you're operating, you have to come up with a, a way of dealing with them that they think is fair. If they think it's not fair, then you're not gonna get what you want and they're gonna to try to do whatever they can to subvert whatever you're doing that they think is unfair. Um, so there's a, there's a sort of a core pragmatism in your view then uh, with respect at least to this point that, uh, mm -hmm. that would see ethics as a sort of a, a, a practical good. Um, so it's not as though there are some sort of transcendent set of moral values that, uh, that we can look well, to as a source. The two, the two go together. I so see. I think that there are moral values. Mm -hmm. You can't have a society without having certain rules that every society has to have and every society does have. You have to have a law against killing your own people. If you just allow people to kill other people in your own society, you don't have a society. You have to have a basis for some sort of trust. If you have a society in which everybody can lie to everybody else, you never get anything done you have to have some notion of property so mm -hmm. that people know what's theirs and what they can use and how they can use it. If that's not clear, whatever the, the rules are, you don't have a society. So right. you need basic rules and only certain things work. So that mm -hmm. I think moral norms come out of practical uh, endeavors 
And what we do is, as a society and as individuals, we look at what works. You say pragmatic, yes. So that we look at what works and then we sort it out and those become our basic moral principles and we build on those. Yeah. You don't have to start from scratch. So mm. people have done this for centuries. It's quite and it's, we inherit a great deal. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I, I think it's a it's a good way of looking at things, but maybe um and maybe it's unfair of me to say that it's you know the, what is implied in the way I put it is merely pragmatic. I mean, it's almost like the, these values or moral norms are conditions for the possibility of the kinds of, for the kinds of institutions that you're interested in sustaining. So there is no notion of a market. There is no notion of capitalism without respect for property. There is no notion of, uh, of, a, of a kind of a, a living, long-term society if we're all killing each other sure so it it's it's more than pragmatic on your view then it, it's somehow connected to the conditions for the possibility of the very institutions that we're engaged in right, right. good right. good yeah so that that's quite striking and i really appreciate the that uh, you putting it in those in those terms um we're we're about to run out of time. And usually, Richard, I ask uh, guests to give me their sense for what they hope for in the future of philosophy. And that's a sort of an odd question in some ways, but we could also parse it differently and say, well, what would you advise the interested young philosophers, or maybe not so young philosophers, who are just getting started, who are thinking about uh, some of these questions, um, what would you advise them to do? So that maybe is too open of a question, All but right. I'm uh, curious to hear I'll, your answer. I'll try to yeah. do this quickly since we don't have much time. But I think that it's important if you're a philosopher to first find out what did the great philosophers think? To, to approach philosophy as if, well, I'm only interested in what's happened the past 10 years. I don't think you get a very good sense of what philosophy is or could be. So that might, I think looking at the history of philosophy gives you a feel. What people have tried to do is make sense of their reality in different realms, but in very important ways. And they've come up with insights. And each one of the great thinkers has a somewhat different insight, but you can learn from all of them. The second thing I'd like to say is that I would encourage at least those who have an interest in following, I hate to call it applied philosophy, but think, how can I make a difference in society? Well, I think you make a difference in society by trying to articulate some of the ideals and goals that philosophers had spoke, have talked about, but that also the society needs and in some ways inarticulately embraces. So the importance of going into medical ethics, engineering ethics, uh, business ethics, is that you engage with society. And I think 
philosophers that do a lot more of engagement with society and they can go off in their study and do the arcane work that we do, but it shouldn't end there. So that study of philosophy isn't just for you, your own personal edification. It isn't just for the profession. It should be for the greater society. And how you bring that, the important work that we do professionally, into the social realm, into the consciousness of people, is an important aspect that we pay too little attention to in our graduate programs and that I think uh, can be remedied and would help society as well as push forward the goals of philosophers. Well, Richard, thank you so much for that. And I would say that you, your career has modeled that um, ideal of the engaged philosopher and, and your work, of course, has, has had extraordinarily positive impact over the course of the past 40 years. So um, I'm grateful for that and thank you. And uh, you're thank definitely you. a, yeah, a model for, for what a good philosopher should actually do uh, and be. So thank you very much, Richard. I appreciate uh, your time and uh, thoughtful answers to our questions. And I hope that uh, I hope that viewers can can send you an email to follow up, um, ask you questions. Uh, you're easy to find on the internet. So Richard to George, thanks very much. Thank you. <laughs>